Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Lily Drexler grew up in San Francisco. And as anyone who lives in San Francisco can relate to, she has a complicated relationship with fog. I both love and get frustrated by the fog. On the one hand, I appreciate how it freshens the air. I appreciate how it changes things up. But it can get old. When there is fog for weeks on end with no break, that does get frustrating. I feel you, Lily. Lily rents in the Richmond district right now, and she's thinking of settling down in San Francisco more permanently, maybe even investing in some real estate. But before she does that, she has some questions about fog. Is it going to get more foggy as kind of the sun bakes the ocean and creates the moisture, if that's how fog works? Or is the warming of the planet going to decrease the fog? As climate change alters everything in our region, where does that leave fog? Where should a fog-averse city dweller settle down? We're going to answer that question, but we're also going to zoom out and look at fog's future in the Bay Area at large. How do we rely on fog now? And how might its absence change us? I'm Olivia Allen Price, and you're listening to Bay Curious. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hi there. I'm Randal Dedfettah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. What does the future of the Bay Area's fog look like? Lily Drexler asked Bay Curious. We sent reporter Dana Cronin out to get some insight. It's a foggy day in Monterey. At least, I thought it was. The fog literally has to be at ground level. So I would call this low cloud, which might become fog. This is fog expert Dan Fernandez. He's a professor at CSU Monterey Bay. As you can tell, I have a lot to learn about fog before I try to answer Lily's questions. And Dan's going to help me. 
He's been studying fog for more than a decade. Before he studied it, he was an electrical engineer and worked on measuring ocean surface currents. He thought about fog from time to time, but his real fascination with it came to him during a meditation retreat. He says he was sitting there meditating. It was a hot day. And he was thirsty. And of course, when you're meditating, minds go all sorts of places. And this is where my mind went. Went into water and then fog. More specifically, he wondered whether he could catch fog, as in pull it out of the air and collect it as a liquid. Turns out, you can. So this is one of 10 of the larger fog collectors that I and a class of mine deployed here back in spring 2018. We're standing next to a fog collector. It's basically a big 4 by 10 piece of mesh reaching into the sky with a trough underneath. Fog hits here on all of them, drips down, runs down this trough. You can see birds visited too, even though I have bird spikes there. The water runs into the rain gauge. It goes through the rain gauge that's recorded here, and I have a data logger in there that records all the volume of water going through. Because it's apparently not a foggy day today, there's no water in the buckets. But when it's super foggy, Dan says he's collected as much as nine gallons in one day. You might wonder what the point is of catching this fog. Could it be enough to help offset California's water shortage during drought years, for example? There's certainly not enough for us to consume the amount of water we consume. So, no. But Dan says it could help farmers with irrigation or provide water for reforestation, which Dan's fog collectors are working on now. He hasn't had them set up for long enough to figure out whether there's been more or less fog over time. And he says that question, how climate change is impacting fog, isn't that simple. There's no general consensus in the science community about what will happen to fog in the future. In fact, they can hardly agree on how to define it. There's a few ways to define fog, and they're somewhat overlapping, which kind of illustrates the some of the complication when trying to define something like fog. According to Dan, for something to be considered fog, it needs to have three things. One... So fog consists of water, tiny, these tiny little droplets that vary in size between one micron diameter uh, spheres and 50 micron diameter spheres. Your hair is about 100 microns. So these water droplets are thinner than that, so thin that they float in the air. But there have to be enough of these droplets to impede our visibility to be less than one kilometer. Then it's defined as fog. If you can see beyond one kilometer, then it's considered mist, not fog. And thirdly... A fog is a cloud that's in contact with the ground. So fog has to hover near the ground, it has to limit our visibility to one kilometer, and it consists of droplets between one and 50 microns. Simple, right? And for that cocktail of ingredients to come together and form fog, we need a temperature gradient, as in something warm and something cool, like the cool ocean and the hot central valley, for example. As cool ocean air reaches land and warms up, it condenses and forms fog. It's a complex phenomenon, 
but that's why Dan likes it. Oh, I find fog mysterious, fascinating, uh, can be scary, uh, and exciting. It's all of those. That's part of the, I think, part of what makes it such a special thing to study. But it also makes it a difficult thing to study and to predict. You can't forecast it the same way you can forecast rain and thunderstorms. And that's why scientists don't know exactly how climate change is impacting fog. But Dan says they have an idea. You know, on the whole, I think that we're going to probably be seeing less fog in general and that we have, that we are currently seeing less than we may have seen a generation ago. Some studies have shown that since the 1950s, fog has declined about 30% during the summertime. But Dan says there's still a lot of uncertainty in the fog science community. For example, that decline could come from the fact that a lot of cities have cleaned up their air since the 50s. So fog has fewer particulates to cling to. Meaning perhaps there's less of it not because of climate change, but because of changing air quality standards. And some studies completely contradict that. At least one used observational notes from ships off the coast of California to suggest fog is getting heavier. But according to Dan, there's some level of consensus that fog is on the decline. And if that's true, there would be consequences here in Northern California. Because as it turns out, we rely on fog in all kinds of ways, both big and small. I'm going to walk you through a few of them, starting with something we're known for, our food. It is a very foggy day on the farm here. Wow. No, for real this time. I'm at Shinta Kawahara Company Farm in Watsonville, about a half mile from the ocean. I'm meeting up with farm owner Rod Coda. Can you usually see the ocean from here? Yes. We're in the Monterey Bay. Um, on a nice day, I could see Pacific Grove and all the way to Santa Cruz, but not, not, not today. We got fog. It's nice. Perfect. Rod grows strawberries. Today, his crew is preparing for planting, using a tractor to lay down plastic to protect the strawberries. Rod says the fog is actually helping this process. It comes out really nice. The dirt's a little softer. And it helps in other ways, too. Rod says in other parts of California where strawberries are grown, like Salinas and Gilroy, it's warmer and the berries ripen more quickly. One heat wave and the berries have to be picked immediately. Whereas thanks to the fog, Rod has more flexibility. Here along the coast with the fog, the temperatures are cooler, which the berries ripen slower and get more sugar content. So you're saying they're better. Strawberries on, along the coast with the fog influence are a little tastier. Exactly. In addition to temperature, strawberries also rely on the moisture from fog, says environmental professor Sarah Boguskis. We learned that strawberry crops have greater water use efficiency during fog events compared to non-foggy periods. That basically means that strawberries don't need as much water when it's foggy. 
Sarah's team also found that the strawberry plants use sunlight more efficiently when it's foggy. Even though the total amount of light that's used by plants is lo- was lower, like dimmer, but the photons are scattered and so more of the leaves are engaged in photosynthesis in the plant. So basically, when it's foggy, strawberry plants are more productive and need less water. Rod has noticed that on his farm. We typically have fog in July and August, um, and usually our volume is up during those times. He says he hasn't really noticed any major changes in the fog patterns in the decades he's been farming. Every year feels different, he says. But if what fog scientist Dan Fernandez said is true, and there won't be as much of it in the future, farmers like Rod might have to compensate. In the future, growing strawberries could require more water, and farmers might not have as much flexibility around when they harvest as they do now. And for us consumers, the berries might be less tasty and more expensive. Besides strawberries, there are many other ways the disappearance of fog could impact the Bay Area. So many of our ecosystems here rely on it, both for moisture and for the cooler temperatures. Redwood trees, for example, are natural fog catchers. They basically drink it and need it to survive. It's why they're unique here to Northern California. Fog scientist Dan Fernandez says there are many other species that rely on it too, including manzanita trees and even some types of lizards. So when one element of an ecosystem is impacted, how does that affect others? Fog may even protect us to some extent from wildfires. The moisture it provides acts as a fire retardant. And without it, Dan says many more areas would be susceptible to megafires. Overall, the loss of fog would fundamentally change the Bay Area. Okay, Dana, but there's one part of Lily's question that we didn't get to answer yet. Where should she invest in property if she's not keen on the fog? Well, like I said, fog is really hard to predict. There isn't a neighborhood-by-neighborhood projection of what its future looks like here in San Francisco. But I did reach out to a real estate agent to get their take on the situation. A lot of my clients ask me, like, so what's the fog like? What's what's it going to do? And and luckily, I know a lot about, like, the weather and just all the patterns and wind and which side of the street's better. This is Alex Clark, owner of Front Steps Real Estate in San Francisco. He told me fog is a really important thing to factor in when buying property. And while he's no fog scientist and he doesn't know what will happen in the future, he says the most important thing is to buy in a neighborhood that you can see yourself living in now. If it's of concern to people, I will literally counsel them and say, this house is going to be in the fog if it's a problem, then we probably need to look elsewhere. It's it's almost like a disclosure, like it's a, it's a pretty important thing for people to know because it definitely affects people. It affects me and I live in it. Well, that's something. Good luck in your search, Lily. That story was reported by KQED's Dana Cronin. 
Next week, our December Bay Curious newsletter goes out. This time, we venture to a Christmas tree farm in Petaluma to learn about the year-round work that goes into growing the perfect Christmas tree. It's part of our unusual job series in the newsletter. Be sure you're subscribed at baycurious.org slash newsletter. Bay Curious is made in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. Our show is produced by Amanda Font, Christopher Beal, and myself. Additional support from Jen Chien, Katie Springer, Cesar Saldana, Maha Sanad, Holly Kernan, and the whole KQED family. I'm Olivia Allen Price. Have a wonderful week. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey there, it's Olivia Allen Price, host of Bay Curious, the podcast. KQED Podcasts wants to thank listeners like you, whose support makes this podcast possible. If you want to help us continue to make great content, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. And thanks.